Hello and welcome to the complete Agnes Varda. I am Matt Gasteyer. I am here with uh, my co-host Travis Trudell. How are you, Travis? I'm doing pretty good. I'm uh, I'm uh, excited to talk about our movie today, and I'm excited to talk about it with our guest. Yes, we have uh, a guest today, a rare guest uh, this season. Every you know, previous seasons we were trying to get a guest on every episode. We've been very slack. We've been slacking off, but instead we're picking perfect guests yes. this time. Yes, quality of, like, over quantity. Quality over quantity, exactly. Um, so our guest is uh, Alex Kittle. Um, Alex, I could tell uh, the audience about you, but I think you could probably do a better job of it. So why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Hello, listeners. Uh, yes, I am Alex Kittle. I am a sorry. <laughs> uh, I am an artist, um, which I believe is how a lot of folks kind of know me. First, I'm an illustrator. Um, and I make a lot of movie-inspired artwork, and I also make zines about uh, women filmmakers, including, of course, the great Agnes Varda, who's in my very first scene. Um, I also am a projectionist, and I work at the Brattle Theater. Um, and those are the two main things I do at the moment. <laughs> I'm also like an art historian. I don't know. I do lots of stuff, but <laughs> those are the, the those main two are are yeah. <laughs> pretty pretty good. I think that you do a pretty good job there. Your zines are really great. Um, I have Thank a couple you. of them. Travis gave them to me, actually, even though oh, I had been nice. eyeing them online for quite some time. So I was very happy to get them, and they're really awesome. I highly recommend everybody check those out. Um, you go as Pan and Scan on Yeah, Pan uh, and Scan Illustration. Yeah. Um, Pan and Scan Illustration, it's like my business name. Um, and yeah, I sell on Etsy uh, and on Kofi, and I have an Instagram, all that fun stuff. But yeah. Highly recommended, um, but uh, but you're here today to uh, to talk about Vagabond. Um, this is episode eleven. Um, we've gotten through uh, thirty years of Varda's filmmaking, um, but we are not quite yet at the halfway point for for her films, uh, for her feature films anyway. Um, this though is a, a very a very large one. Um, but before we get to it, um, I did want to ask you, Alex, just in general about your relationship with Anya Svarda, um, how you came to her films, uh, sort of how you your uh, relationship with them has evolved over time. Kind of, do you have you seen them all? Do you go in order, like, and kind of just a little bit of background on on your thinking around Varda. Sure. I mean, she's um, easily one of my favorite filmmakers. Um, I'm trying. It's funny. I'm actually trying to remember the first. I think the first one I saw, like many, I'm sure, was was Cleo from Five to Seven. Um, I watched that for the first time uh, a little less than ten years ago, probably maybe like eight years ago, um, and of course loved it. I think it is just. It probably just came to me from as being, you know classic film one should see I was I never super got into the French new wave but knowing that a woman had directed it made me more interested and than I think I was otherwise you know I'm not really into like Godard um and I've watched more and more and the more that I watch the more that I I want to like she's I just feel every single time I watch something she's made it affects me very deeply. I think she's one of the most just genuinely compassionate filmmakers. And the fact that she has this long career and has 
made films across different countries and subjects and genres um, and, and different people she's collaborated with. I She's someone who I have seen a lot of her movies, especially her features, but I'm so glad that I always have more to see. Well, not always, but you know, I kind of take my time with her. I feel like I always want to have another Bardo to watch, so I, I don't really, um, I don't like binge on Varda. I kind of watch like a couple a year so that I can really pace them out and sit with each one and always know that I can have another to look forward to. Yeah, despite the fact that, you know, this is this podcast is called The Complete, there is something like very um, sad about not having new work from from filmmakers you love. I mean, like Ozu's my favorite director. Um, there's always the chance that one of his Lost Silence will show up and then I'll get to see a, a brand new Ozu. But at this point, I've seen them all and it's kind of like, you know, there it, it it's nice with with the a filmmaker like Varda that you know when you go back to a film you're going to get something new out of it. So it's not like there's not anything left to explore, but there is something very magical about um, you know the credits rolling on something where you completely don't know what you're going to get, and but you know that you're in good hands. Exactly, and she is someone who I think often when I've revisited a film it's maybe been with someone else. You know, maybe I'm showing it to someone or maybe I'm yeah. watching it in the theater. Um, and that's also been really nice is um, being able to, having seen the work, but then seeing it in a new way because I'm sharing it with someone else or I'm watching it with someone else. Um, another another thing that I do that I didn't mention, I run a, a like feminist film club called Strictly Prohibited. Um, and, you know, I remember showing Cleo from 5 to 7 as one of the first films we watched when I started that group. And most of the people who were there hadn't seen it before. And so being able to introduce her, like the film and introduce Varda to uh, the people in my group was like so exciting. And, and we had a really great discussion about it. And that was, that was fulfilling. Oh, that's awesome. That's super cool. Yeah. Uh, the way that films can become biographical, like how, how they are affected by times in your life uh, when you see them and the, you know, right. Uh, it, it always adds to so much more to uh, your remembrance of the film and kind of like, how it uh how it plays into your life i that's why i love i love always revisiting things i even things that i'm like ah oh, this is a you know something that i don't think fondly of i'll always give something another <laughs> chance it might have been me i don't blame them right maybe. it's my fault sometimes <laughs> no so often it's because i was too young and maybe i wasn't yeah, ready no. for something wasn't mature that's actually something i really like about working at a movie theater um especially something like you know we're a repertory you know so we're showing Often we're showing films that I've seen before, but I it's so easy to revisit them because it's right there, you know, like I'm always yeah. there anyway, I might as well watch. And I often get so much more out of it, both because now, you know, it's often it's something I've seen, maybe I was in college, you know, maybe I was even a teenager, it was too dumb to really know. And uh, But seeing it on the big screen can totally change your point of view, seeing it with other people or just seeing it now at where I am in my life. Um, and I do it way more now from working there than I think I used to do. So it's, it's been, that's very rewarding. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's really relevant to this movie too, because I, I mean, for me, I watched this movie when I was in my twenties last and, uh, I loved it then, um, you know, possibly as much as I do now, but I think the, the place where you are in your life, the, the things that tie you down or that keep you in a place, you know, this movie, I think, it ultimately is a reflection of the viewer. And 
I think no matter when you watch it, like you're going to have an experience that m makes you reflect on your own life and the ties that you have and the, and the, the limits of freedom that, that either you placed on yourself or that, that other people have placed on you. So, um, that was something really that relevant I, to this movie. I just, I had read, um, Ebert's review of this earlier. Um, and that was something he kind of said, and I found interesting because he was like, oh, you're watching this movie about this unknowable girl and who only gives up pieces of herself to the people she meets and you don't really learn, you know, her true story. And he was like, but after you watch the movie, you realize that that's, it's about you because we can never be truly known and different people know different things about us, but no one mm. can know the whole person was kind of what he was. I forget his yeah. exact words, but that was the gist, which I thought was a, a cool way of looking at it. Um Anyway, sorry, just you reminded me of that with that. No, oh, yeah, totally, yeah. It's completely, like, if, you know, I can totally see this being something like, you know, in your rebellious youth, uh, punk rock phase in your younger years, uh, it totally siding with this girl's uh, destructive uh, attempt at being completely free of everything. But at the same time, you know, now that I'm pushing into my 50s, I'm going, oh, come <laughs> on, don't do that, please. Uh, I was going to say, I imagine it's different viewing it, um, like, for, as a young person versus if you're like a parent now like I yeah. feel like you'd be like yeah. oh god you know because she I mean she herself I mean the actress was 17 which I think yeah. I hadn't really realized in, until after I watched it um but I feel like you and so many of the characters do kind of have a you some of them seem to have a sort of maternal paternal instinct towards her and I think a lot of viewers would as well yeah yeah definitely I think though like I mean uh we're just diving into the conversation here, but I, I think like, Oh, sorry. Uh, no, no, that's no, no, no. That's the way to do it. We, yeah, we totally <laughs> do it all the time. Cause it, well, this is, it's so exciting to talk about a movie like this, this movie fucking rules. But, um, there, you know, when you're young, as much as you sort of say, yeah, like this is so great. You also kind of have to identify, you, you, you have to identify the fact that you yourself are not doing this, that there's something, mm -hmm. whether it is, through what you perceive of as logic or what is possibly fear prevents you from, you know, just setting off on the road and having interesting adventures. Like there is there, you, you are immediately have to interrogate yourself as to why you are not doing this. Whereas when you have kids and a family and a job and a mortgage, you're like, well, you know, what am I going to do? Like sell all this <laughs> stuff and forget all, forget my family. You but could I be think like there the is, uh, you know, philosopher guy. I could. That's true. The farmer. Could, <laughs> the goat, the goat raise herder. goats. It looks like a really glamorous existence. Yes. Don't get me wrong. Um, eat, eat, pray, I just herd. mean, but he was... <laughs> <laughs> he was with i just mean because he was with his family you know i just mean you don't have to leave them behind yeah no um, totally i mean he's but obviously a, and, he, he was settled he, down he he was really doing that too that was a you know that was yeah. his real life i know um, i'm so glad that um i meant to say i'm so glad that the documentary about the film was part of you know this discussion because that i had not seen before and i learned a lot and it was really interesting to learn I knew that, you know, a lot of the people were non-actors, and that's, of course, very common with Varda, but I think I didn't appreciate how several people in the film are actually playing versions of themselves, including yeah. that guy. And so that was interesting. He, like, I, Yeah, I and she didn't really way. think about, you know, incorporating those scenes into the film until she found those people and right, sort of right. worked around them. And it was interesting with that guy, He, he in an interview that she uh, that she gave, she talked about how he... 
and she wrote the the words that he says they're not his words they she kind of based you know what what she wanted to write um on each of the people's lives but she wrote the words for them and they performed as actors um and she said that he specifically said that he did not want to be in a documentary or playing himself that he wanted but if but if she was going to give him words to speak and he would get paid as an actor that's fine he'll do that this um, is for which the goat, I found really the goat fascinating. Herder? Yeah, the, yeah, the goat herder. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's, then I guess maybe I misunderstood. In the in the documentary, they I, she made it sound like he he a lot of what he was saying was sort of echoing something he had said off camera. Yeah, like I she, think that's like the it was idea. His, it was his words, or you know, it was his uh, his. It was kind of his thought. sentiment about right. Yeah, exactly. totally. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I think she used kind of like conversations with these peop- real life people. Yeah, to then write as, like versions yeah. of them. Which yeah. is okay, kind just of, double checking. I was like, yeah, and it was kind of like what she did with the. Uh, it's a, it's a similar technique that she used with uh, Lapointe Court uh, to yeah. uh, do the fishermen's uh, dialogues and stuff. Is just through interview processes, getting to know the characters, and then writing. You know, kind of in their tone, in their spirit, but uh, you know, making it more. You know, it's it's such a, and this is such a. You know, you could see her throughout her career working towards this distillation of that kind of documentary slash narrative that she's been you know trying to incorporate together and it's so amazing that how well this is able to uh this is able to work it's like a perfect distillation of everything she had been trying up until this point uh you know because we've seen some kind of fumblings with that and documentor you know trying to kind of make it documentary but fiction and then you know and just it's so amazing um because in the technique in which she gets us into these interviews style is such an interesting one too because it feels like it's a police procedural like we're trying to figure out and piece together this woman's timeline before she died and then it's quickly ab- it's quickly abandoned that it's police officers <laughs> so you're kind of like wait but who who are they and then you know obviously they're talking to us but uh, at the same time it's like who are they talking to and so if you go with your analytical mind you're just like ah who, who, who's who's everyone talking to in this movie? And oh, I do. It's funny. To each yeah. other. I do think of them as talking no, to Varda because in the beginning, yeah. the very beginning of the movie, she does. She's like right. she puts herself in, and she's like, "I went around and talked to people," and then you never hear her again. That's um, <laughs> that's the interesting part because so, she's so I, comfortable I, I, inserting herself into her movies, even her fiction films, yeah. and yet you know she she kind of t- dips her toes in so to speak at the beginning and then she's not seen again and while some people are directly addressing the camera in their testimonials some people s- are talking to 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 people in you know like across the table from them. right yeah and so you do not see at least one person addressing you do see some her. people talking to a cop at w- once or cop, twice yeah. you, you see you right. see like a cop in the side of the shot yeah but anytime they're talking directly to the camera i guess i just i i always picture that they're not talking to me, but they're, they're talking to her. But then, but um, then you've got Yolande uh, breaking the fourth wall. I love that part within the scenes, <laughs> and so it's like that's like it's just fascinating because it's not it, it even breaks the format of the format we've set up, we've established, which is <laughs> which is absolutely fantastic. It's a bit of that rebellion pushing through that she, uh, you know, it's almost like she sides a little bit with her uh, her lead actress and. In in terms of you know not not committing to a format not uh, following the rules, mm. I sort of thought of it as like you know how a lot of documentaries will have uh, reenactments. Mm-hmm. 
I sort of thought of it like that, like, oh, this entire movie could be mm. a documentary where uh, Sandrine Bonner, I'm, I might be mispronouncing her name, <laughs> um, right. is reenacting what happened to Mona, especially uh, since, again, I learned this from the documentary, um, how, you know, a lot of her character was based on a real young woman um, who, who then has a cameo in the film, um, <sighs> which I thought was like, I loved that, you know combo um but yeah but I, like when there's a few moments where that's kind of what it makes me think of like it's that's not what the film is but i think that w- it could be read that way for a lot of it and the breaking the fourth wall part kind of made me think of that like oh this is a scene of them filming a reenactment was kind of what i was thinking yeah i think it's similarly like for me the first time i watched this movie and i think part of this is like the and I'm not the first person to make this comparison. It's in the Criterion essay. It comes up like frequently, um, but just Sis and Kane immediately came to mind for me. And so I kind of perceived Mm -hmm. it as I was watching it the first time as the, the scenes were being described uh, by the person that we see at the end, giving the testimonial. So it's almost like they're telling this story of what happened and then, and then you know we come out of their flashback and we hear the end of uh of their story and kind of what they thought of mona and where they are now um but of course there are many times in the film where she's the only person around or the people who she's interacting with don't give testimonials so it's not you know, I mean, not to say that Citizen Kane is the most buttoned up of narratives either, but <laughs> it, it's definitely at least like this feels again like she's constantly. I mean, I think part of it is just that she's she is very conscious of, uh, at this stage in her career, in particular, of like evoking a uh, a con- and a, a, not just even a feeling, but like a concept or an idea as opposed to sticking to any kind of like formalist rule, even yeah. though she, she, she picks and chooses when she wants to do that. Right. Cause she will still have these um, sequences of Mona walking and she's like, I'm going to do this 12 times and each shot is going to end with a match cut to the next one. Yeah. And the, this is the only time we're going to be playing this music and the music's going to be carefully composed for each one of these scenes. So it's like she she's very willing to not only um, break with formality, but to to pick and choose where she wants to use, um, you know, a very strict structure versus something that's incredibly loose and that she's just kind of feeling out that day when she gets on set. Yeah. And that falls in line with her uh, cinecriture, you know, the the whole ideal and concept of uh, that. style she's trying to attain right you know kind of like writing with film language as opposed to writing and then filming and then editing like she's kind of like building it all together at once so that idea that she had these you know this uh this run through line of these uh you know tragic uh long uh, dolly shots set to this uh really uh emotionally stirring music um you know, at the same time, uh, you know, mixed in with all this documentary type style interview and then, you know, uh, the scenes playing out uh, as they do as she uh, moves from person to person, place to place. I want to go back and talk about like uh, when we were talking about the uh, the fact that uh, uh, Citizen Kane, it's almost it's almost more like leaning towards uh, like Rashomon in terms of all these people are telling 
different ideas of who they think they are imposing their thoughts and mm. they're kind of like their ideals on this person but the one thing that happens differently is that mona never changes like their ideas and their ideals and what they think changes as they talk but what we get from mona as a character she never changes so it's almost like she's the steady through line but everyone else is the constant change you know we have someone you know lying about you know you can't even remember she says i have a dirty hands i mean a dirty mind no that's what she said and then you know someone else just kind of like riffing off just this you know this slight moment of like i would love to be free like her and all you know the only interaction she had with her was hey can i fill up a bottle of water it there was no like deeper interaction it's just this concept so instead of her being this concept that's malleable to all these people which would then visually we might have like you know with with a maybe a lesser filmmaker or more novice filmmaker they might feel the need to change uh mona to each person's memory of her but instead varda is just keeping that you know that uh firm this is her this is how she is she's unknowable she doesn't want to she never says thank you except for once and she can you know she's very like willing to take what she thinks she needs and wants and not willing to you know sacrifice or change the way she goes about things while everyone else is willing to like make excuses or, or or put their dreams upon her or put their thoughts about their feelings on her and she just, you know, it all just rolls right off of her. She keeps moving forward and keeps traveling. I totally agree. And I think that's one of the strengths of the film is that Varda never um, or rarely feels like she has to tell us about Ona. Like, I think I think a, another version of this film made by someone else and probably made more recently might feel like it needs to explain her. Mm-hmm or give her a backstory of some kind, or just, you know, like, we don't really know much about her motivations. We know very little about her past. Um, and even her personality, we only see kind of a certain side of it, really. Um, because, we, you know, we don't see, like, what would she be like with a friend? We wouldn't know, you know, yeah. um, or a relative. But uh, I think that that it means that not only do all the characters in the film, they're able to, like, put their own fears and fantasies and preconceived notions onto her because she's kind of like she's not a blank slate so much but she is like you say she's this like unknowable entity who's who kind of represents different concepts to different people but it's the same with the audience like we can put ourselves into the film as one of those characters that's just observing her and making assumptions and having her represent something to us that relates to ourselves and not to her and I, I just, I really admire that Varda didn't feel the need to like over-explain. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. There, there was something, um, ta- uh, something I read this week talked about how when there are male drifters, there's always like a, some tragedy in their lives. Like they, you know, felt they were accused of a crime they didn't commit or they were cleared of something, but they still live with the guilt of it. Um, like Manchester by the Sea or Paris, Texas or something like that. And this film just, it it doesn't see the need for any of that. And I think most of what we see of Mona is 
basically just a rejection of basic societal norms, you know? Right. Like, you know that it's a choice. Yeah. Like, she doesn't do all. I just mean, it's not the same as, like, she's not running away from a crime or whatever. Like, right. she wasn't. She's choosing. Everything she does feels like it's a, not everything. She, she had a but. regular job like everybody else, and she just yeah. hated it. And she was just like, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. And that was all that, you know, that was enough for her. Um, and it's not satisfying to anybody in the movie when they hear that. Um, but to her, that, you know, that, that, that I think that's what makes her fascinating to us is that there isn't this unique thing that like, oh, what would we do if that happened to us? This has happened to all of us. <laughs> we all have a shitty job that like we don't want to go to in the morning when we wake up. And like we all think about like, well, what would it be like if we didn't have to answer to anybody? Like if we didn't have to say please every time uh, like a waiter or thank you every time a waiter put down the the water and then thank you when they put down the, the silverware and like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's just we have all of this stuff bearing down on us where we think like we need to show people that we're appreciative of, of them and we need to show people respect by presenting ourselves in a way that's not going to gross them out, like whatever it is. <laughs> and like, yeah, sure. Like some of that stuff I actually enjoy. Like I like getting out of the shower clean personally. Maybe that's just, you know, society bearing down on me um, through conditioning, but like, some of it, it, you know, it's very, it's very freeing. And I think it's really interesting, especially in this film, how for most of the people who say they want to be like MoMA, they're women. Like they're mm -hmm. most, mostly, it's mostly like Yolande or the girl um, at the farm telling her parents that, you know, she wants to live like that. Or the wife like, telling her husband, I should have left you a long time ago. I was ago. just about yeah. to say, I was like, she was my favorite. <laughs> well, I do yeah. actually, it's funny. And in the notes that I took, because I'm an A student, um, <laughs> something that I, kept, <laughs> that I kept coming back to, because it, you know, of course, there is a point made about the fact that, you know, there aren't that many women drifters. Yeah. And obviously, the, you know, I think that the way she is treated by various people is very much related to her gender and her youth. Um, but I also, I mean, I think it's true that in there are a lot of like general overarching societal norms that she's rejecting but i think a lot of them are also gendered norms um yeah. because think you know i'm not saying that everyone shouldn't say please and thank you <laughs> but i think there is a certain um sort of ideal of femininity that relates to mm. being polite and accommodating you know yeah. you you're not supposed to take up too much space just all, the, all those types of little things that i'm not saying other genders don't um, identify with but that you know it is commonly oh. you know the way it's kind of yeah. ingrained in girls at a young age and um, in various ways and so I I think that that is what makes her so impressive <laughs> because I had the same thought like I am definitely a pretty I'm a non I'm very non-confrontational I was raised to be very polite I used to be, I used to be made fun of for how polite I was <laughs> um, literally uh, and it See, I, I couldn't even imagine not saying thank you, you know, like right. all the time she didn't do it. I was like, oh, my God, she's so brave. <laughs> I know. Well, no, it almost hurts. Like, it's, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think like, it's some, like I, what they, they just did you a huge favor. Like, you didn't oh say God, thank you. you. What are you doing? Yeah, it's that concept of like her idea is like, well, I'm totally free. Yeah, but you're relying on everyone. So like, exactly. are you free? Yeah. Like, like I don't she know, also like, doesn't, if you don't help her, 
fuck you and she'll just keep walking. I, yeah, you know, exactly. I, mean, I think that's it. It's like the choice to help her is on you. She's not going to force it either way. Yep. Right? Yeah. Um, but I, I think what I, I was, I was thinking a lot about, I often think about um, like unlikable women protagonists in uh-huh. film because I think there's, you know, there's kind of maybe more than there used to be, but it's still something that happens a little bit less. Um, and that I think the last time I watched this movie, it hadn't occurred to me, but watching it this time, I made what to me is a very obvious connection. She really made me think of um, Ren in Smithereens um, oh, from 1982, yeah. which is one of my favorite movies. Susan Seidelman is one of my favorite directors, so it totally makes sense that she and Varda would kind of be in a similar uh, headspace uh, since Smithereens was 82 and, and this was uh, 85. Um, but just the idea of this very <laughs> this like sort of unlikable young woman who just is doing her own thing she's not here to make friends she's going to completely do, like be herself and not try and bend herself to anyone else's expectations for any reason and even though in real life maybe that kind of person <laughs> you might not want to hang out with realistically right. but i think representing that type of woman on film and making them the center of a story and showing while they, you know, might not be likable, they're still sympathetic. And I'm just always so appreciative when filmmakers do that. And I was, I was happy to make this connection on this, on this rewatch. Uh, Cause I don't, I don't know. It just hadn't occurred to me before, but now I'm like, oh yeah. Imagine like Ren and Mona together. Like would they kill oh, each yeah. other or would they totally bond? <laughs> yeah, <probably. laughs> it's an interesting um, compare. I really like the comparison. I think it makes total sense, obviously, but it's also interesting to think about because Smithereens ends with Ren basically just, you know, hitching another ride. And yes. It's and kind things of a getting worse and ending, worse for but... her the way they do for Mona. Yeah. And, and like I mean, the trajectory like the, of the what, film. What would Smithereens look like if you started with her lying dead in a in an alleyway somewhere in New York City? Mm. You know, that would, would she be, be a more totally sympathetic? Movie. Because you know that she's going to die. Would you feel for her more than maybe you would? Because I think yeah. that's something that yeah. I think it adds sympathy to the character of Mona. Because no matter what you think of her, you know she's going to have this tragic ending and that she's going to be alone and no one will really know, you know, what to do and who she is. And regardless of anything else you know about her, that's just, it's very sad. It's a sad concept. Um, And I think it affects the way that you you view her in general because you know this awful thing is going to happen to her regardless of who she is, of any other opinion you have of her. You have to have some sort of compassion. Yeah, and Varda does a great job of uh, almost uh, making you forget that for a second, like when yeah. she's uh, spending time when she's spending time with the tree doctor, going around and kind of you know having most almost a maternal uh, finally a maternal figure in her life that kind of is taking care of her and doesn't ask much of her and enjoys her company and kind of is just doing her thing and then you know just kind of like yeah go check her out she's just hanging out in my car it's totally fine she loves it in and there, even huh? and later she wants to find her yeah like you're like oh maybe moto will be rescued and yep. like you know you could you could it's so easy to imagine another movie that would do that like it's it's like yeah. she's setting up the potential for a happy ending even though you as a viewer know yeah. for a fact it can't happen right but and, varda's still like oh you know what are the different threads that could have gone yeah. here you know and it and it could it totally could have if the 
uh, spineless dude of the yeah. movie who, you know, can't, you know, is running his aunt into a home to take her home from her and just Ugh. won't confront this messy woman to help her, even though she he's been tasked with doing this. He's like, nah, she's a mess. I'm like scared his boss of her. asked him. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm so sorry that a drunk teenager is like completely something that you have, don't have the tools to deal with. Like just hold, yeah. like, t- you know, take her by the hand and sit with her until she's less drunk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Give her some water. Or, her well, or the Algerian farmer who, who, you know, she could have, you know, lived with and Tunisian. And, but yes. I mean, Tunisian. Yes, <laughs> sorry. <I'm> sorry. <laughs> they just made a point of the fact that he was from yeah, Tunisia. So. Yes. From that's right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> no, but, but I mean like, you know, that, that was the opportunity that she seemed to really want, like of any of these. I mean, she didn't really necessarily want to go with, with, the, with the tree doctor. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think she was enjoying the ride, but she understood that like the time was up. But she really wanted to stay yeah. with that guy and, and you know, um, farm, it seemed like. And, the, you know, that was that was the I feel like that was kind of the turning point for her. That was that was. Yeah, her it was the slope. first person to kind of take her at her own terms and teach her something like not just like give her yeah. something or, you know, he was like willing to take the time. Like, just just do what I do and, you know, come you know, follow me and I'll make up for the things you miss and just, you know, be a part of this and see what you what you like. And I think and it didn't feel like there was any I mean. There was no, in, you know, explicit romantic things going on. There's a couple of like tender uh, touches to the face on her part, but and you know him looking at her hand. But it didn't feel like, uh, you know, this was a, a transactional, you know, kind of like with the garage, the uh, the the right. skeevy yeah. mechanic in the garage, where uh, you know his kindness is completely wiped out by uh, you know uh, taking of you know going to her tent. Right, and then t- saying that uh, they're all men chasers. Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> As a sidebar, I did find it. Maybe it's just that in my life, like I don't, I don't see, you know, hitchhikers. Really, I don't. I think I don't think I know that many people who are like visibly like, oh, I'm traveling from place to place. Like I'm a drifter. That's what I do. Of course, many people do it. I'm not at all saying it's not a thing, but the fact that um that guy. He had all these preconceived stereotypes about female drifters. And I'm like, hey, this movie has made it clear that there aren't that many in the first place. Doesn't seem like there's enough to have stereotypes exist yeah. about them. <laughs> and also, like, they, you know, it's a part of the point of the movie is that it was at a time when, like, homelessness wasn't really in the public consciousness. Obviously, these are set in, like, rural areas. I just don't imagine that this guy is constantly seeing and talking about female drifters in a way that then, like, pr- opinions and the stereotypes to be developed about them so the fact that he was like well clearly all female drifters <laughs> yeah. are only, well, like alex, all i want you've obviously <laughs> alex you've obviously not met my mother who uh oh. who will make a grand giant uh just generalization about a whole culture based on one thing <laughs> one time we went to I... belgium all together and there was no pepper on our table and guess what Belgians don't use pepper. Belgians don't use use pepper. pepper. It's over. Like, there's no talking around of it. We can't ask Agnes Varda about this. Yeah, that's true. She would know. 
I've met one female drifter. I've met them all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's. Just, I mean, I know that's not like the point, but it was just like just the way oh, he yeah. says it. I was like, wait, where are you getting the stereotype from? <laughs> like, what, was this? I, mean, like I a think that that's like a really <laughs> kind of like a really powerful scene in the film because she she immediately just like makes fun of him and like doesn't give a shit basically. Like the, I think that that there is something as well to the, you know, uh, well, obviously, like the sexual violence that is uh, put upon her, but also just her sexuality in general in this film. That's very challenging from a societal perspective and specifically from a perspective of what is proper femininity. Like she just doesn't use sex in the way that she's supposed to as like a homeless female drifter like similar to the prostitute that she meets on the road like you expect her to be you know a street walker like or trading for money for sex or for weed even like she's not like with with the guy in the in the um, abandoned chateau like there's just all of these expectations i think around what um, you know, a woman, a woman in that situation would do to in order by. to be like looked down upon. And she just refuses to, um, you know, play into those stereotypes. Especially because she is so not sexualized in any way, which again, yeah. since mm-hmm. she was 17, I certainly appreciate, but um, like that is something that while she is seen to be someone who has sex and who can enjoy it, um, you know, with people she meets, as well as, of course, experiencing sexual violence as she does in the woods. Um, like she, her, you know, the, the way the character is presented is extremely not sexualized um, in a way that I really appreciate. Because again, I could, you yeah. could just, so much about this movie, I just feel I'm like in different hands, you could just see it going so many other ways and all of them are bad. <laughs> So oh, it just, it's, it, I'm just constantly, Varda is someone who every time I watch one of her films, I just feel like a gratitude towards her. Um, and that that's the type of thing that, uh, the type of thought I had while watching the film was just yeah. like, thank God Varda told the story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's that it's, and I think you said early when you were talking about Varda, it's that compassionate humanist sec, uh, like part of her that doesn't want, like, you know, it it doesn't rely on the stereotypes. It doesn't rely on the easy way to kind of get to a point of a story. Everything has like depth meaning and a, in like a human connection that kind of, that makes, that makes your connection to the movie uh, much more deeper than most uh, filmmakers would have. And then like talking about the, uh, um, you know, the fact that the character um, has sexuality and enjoys sex, but also like, listening to uh, Sandrine talk about like how she wanted her character to smell so bad that there would be no chance of rape because no one would ever want to touch her. But obviously, you know, the older, wiser Varda is like, well, no, it really doesn't matter. Men are just horrible human beings and they're going to do <laughs> yeah. it anyway. No matter what you're wearing, no matter how you're smelling, no matter what your condition you're in, it's going to happen. And I think like listening to her talk about that when she was uh, younger and then listening to her remembering that story when she's a little bit older and kind of going. So, yeah, no, I could see what she was getting at. And it was it was like that's such a sad and totally 
like, sad realization and it's just one of those things that it's just like ugh, that it's just horrible to think about i know which is why i do appreciate that varda doesn't linger on it i think it mm, she's yeah. like this movie is about the realities of what this type of woman would experience and it's based on stories she has heard from people who have gone through this right um like people she interviewed and everything who were actually living this lifestyle but she was also like so she's like yeah like it's a reality and you as a viewer know it's a reality and you're probably thinking about it while you're watching the movie that this probably would happen to her i can only assume it wasn't the first time right like i'm assuming it happened to her before we met her um but at the same time varda was like but I'm not going to linger on it. I don't need to go into it. We're not going to be exploitative. We're just going to like address it head on and then move on, <laughs> which, and I appreciated the way that she handled it. Yeah, no, she, and she talks about in interviews, um, she would never show a rape. Basically she says right. straight up. Um, and, and, and in fact, she, she, uh, talks about even like specific acts of violence, non-sexual violence. She would not, want to show and she says you know the, no matter how much you know how graphic and and terrible um what you show is there is some form of voyeurism or somebody is going to be uh you know fascinated by by it and ultimately entertained by the depiction and there's something morally wrong about that from her perspective and as much as there are you know many highly violent films that I enjoy. Um, it, it, it's true. I mean, that's very much like it's impossible to, you know, it, as much as anybody wants to tell people that Goodfellas is a cautionary tale, like <laughs> that's not the experience of watching that movie. You know, there you are enjoying the this seeing, you know, people get get beaten to a pulp and be stabbed in the trunk of cars and uh, that's just not the kind of filmmaker that Varda is or would ever want to be. That is a very good point. Yeah, I mean, she's she's consistently been, you know, working hard at telling humanist stories and from a f- feminist lens. And it's been, it's, uh, you know, when she set out to tell this story, I think she originally set out to tell the story of male drifters. And then after coming across uh, the 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 female drifter that she ended up casting and getting a lot of her source material from about uh, the different stories in that woman's life, um, that's Satina was her name. Yeah, Tina. Yep, and she changed. So she changed the story around that. Satina. Satina. No. I just thought that was a cool name, so I wrote it down. That is a cool name. And that's the only conversation in the film that's actually like a real conversation, right? Yes, about how they both were in orphanages. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that she would, you know, again, it's like she's got these strict rules, like she's not, um, you know, filming people as they are. She's writing everything. But then if she gets, uh, I guess, a moment of grace like that, she's not going to not put it in the movie. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think she is at heart, you know, a documentarian um yeah. and so i think obviously this movie is combining the genres but i feel like yeah if she kind of has something like that happen she's not gonna try and force it to be fiction you know yeah um so that that made sense to me that she would have something like that in there um i want to talk about the 
final lines of remembrances, which is the, the DVD bonus feature that she made um, 20 years later. Um, but I, I, I do just want to say, like, it's incredible to me that, that you know, Varda, I mean, if, film, if filmmakers followed Varda's um, example and put together their supplements yeah, <laughs> for put their, their own films. supplements together like what what a rich <laughs> um uh supplement i mean i can't think of a better supplement than this film and like the you know and and she's referencing in the film like there's other supplements on this dvd yeah <laughs> like within the film so it's just like the, it's she's she's not just like making a movie and then she's like oh you can throw this on the dvd it's like she's really thinking about like how am i going to sort of surround my work with context and and enrich it you know especially through the passage of time which she she did with multiple um of her films uh le bonheur is like one of the one of the uh other examples um, just these, these revisitations and remembrances are so spectacular. Um, but at the end, she, you know, she really looks back fondly on this film and she basically says like, this is exactly what I've always, this film is exactly what I was always trying to do. Um, and I, I wrote, wrote it down because I think it speaks to like everything that, that Varda was doing, but she said she was creating a strong character and seeing it well acted in a fiction about important an important issue, immersing myself in spaces, getting across the variations in space, filming this fiction with a documentary texture, moving and questioning audiences, calling them to witness. I mean, yeah, it's hard to imagine like a better distillation of Varda as a filmmaker than that, and the fact that she can just sort of like toss that off in a dvd supplement for one of her movies um is pretty extraordinary I and mean, i think we could talk for for an hour about each one of those lines because there's so much um in in each one of those things i mean i think we've spent a lot of time talking about filming the fiction with a documentary texture um and moving and questioning audiences and calling them to witness i mean i think that's yeah. really what this film is about yeah there's a lot of societal uh society like pointing the finger at society and kind of like in those judgments that a lot of the uh, male characters are making about both uh, the you know uh, mona and kind of like the idea of transient people uh you know there's a bunch of classism uh you know the the, the yolanda having that job working for uh, an older lady who's just surrounded by all of her rich things and everyone's just waiting for her to die so they can pick apart her rich things and then the you know the type of middle class uh, uh man the nephew is that would and his wife that would uh you know be that uh uh devious and kind of uh, just uncaring and unfeeling um predatory you know, oh yeah it's super predatory and then you know <laughs> even 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 the uh the lower class so where we have a uh, uh, you know uh the rockabilly the boyfriend <laughs> yeah oh. paul's paul's uh, rockabilly uh, you know uh, yolanda's rockabilly boyfriend paul uh paul paolo who uh you know is just uh using her to case the joints to be able to steal stuff from uh you know someone he just shared a whole like bottle of wine with which is you know, this man has invited you into his home or in his place of business, shared wine with you, made a connection with you, and then you go ahead and, you know, that guy's going to get fired. 
and that guy's probably doesn't have the best <laughs> job in the world. That guy's just uh, and then you know sits there in that bed. Oh, I hated that character. That was like <laughs> just the whole rocket yeah, side agree. of it too. He's the true. He's the true <laughs> villain. He's just a yeah. mooch. He's got a he's got a pompadour and a style that reminded me of Slumber Party Massacre Two, the Driller Killer from that one. Um, but yeah, no horrible okay. mooch, horrible just treating. I will her not bad. be on a podcast that this is the killer in Slumber Party Pass Slumber Party Massacre. Oh no, II. I'm not I'm dissing right him. Now. Uh, he is I'm just picking, I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm talking about I'm talking about I'm talking about purely styling him. his look after him not not attacking I, I love Slumber Party Massacre 2 no, I, I love Slumber Party Massacre 1 <laughs> um, I love Yolande like she she's got such a great face and obviously she she went on to have a, a big career um, and she was also in, in the short, uh, that we discussed on the last episode, um, the seven, uh, seven rooms, I forget the, the kitchen bathroom. Yeah, both her and the, uh, and aunt, uh, Liddy are, uh, yeah. yeah. And Yolan played a maid in, in that as well. Um, who, who was similarly, um, very bad at her job. <laughs> um, and She's just, yeah, she just, uh, I guess she was typecast in that way, but like, she's just got, um, this real attitude in this movie that I think is really, um, really wonderful. I also think she actually has the best style of anyone in the movie. It was really feeling her looks. <laughs> she had like yeah. this cool, like blue fur coat, if I remember totally. correctly. Uh-huh. And like big hair, like yes. cool hair. Yeah. Like she, she had some vibes that I enjoyed. Um, but also <laughs> I wanted her to fucking dump that boyfriend. Um, I think she was just like living, living in her own dream world. And that was her real problem. Yeah. She was romanticizing everything. And, and, and and she probably also was in a level of, she may not think that she could do better. I mean, even if she's, I think that was a big part of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I think that she was like, I have a boyfriend and I, that's all that matters. I don't want to lose any boyfriend that I have, you know, regardless of the fact that he's in a Yeah. I, I mean, she hated her job too. So. I mean, I think it was probably for the best that she. Even though got it dismissed. seems like a really chill job. I know, but she was not into it. Well, that's it, the thing. but but that's the thing, right? Like that's the thing that Mona shows us in that scene right. is that if Yolanda would have tried to make a connection right. She's with the a older cool lady, lady, they would have had the best time ever. They could have had a great yeah. time together. They she could have been constantly drunk at work. Could have just been the two of them. <laughs> yeah, doing yeah, shots exactly. and uh, talking shit <laughs> yeah. about the uncle, by the about the nephew. The nephew yeah. yeah, the nephew and the boy, nephew and the boyfriend can go off and fuck themselves. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she could have. She probably could have helped and that you know been a representative for her or something. When they came in, oh, totally, completely, her stuff, yeah, like because the old lady just didn't have any, um, like, didn't have anyone on her team in that scenario. No, it's a, it's a real bummer. <laughs> yeah, unlike everything else about this movie, which is super uplifting. <laughs> oh, super uplifting. Feel it good. is not. It is not a um, a fun movie. No. I mean, it, even even like there's because uh, typically Varda has at least like a bit of a sense of humor it's interesting to me that this film which is is really bleak definitely her most bleak film um and probably her most challenging from just like a a viewer perspective in terms of like how you really want to think about that um the fact that it was her biggest hit uh to this point is uh kind of astonishing and not only that but that they used the the confrontational and challenging component of the experience of viewing the film 
as like the main campaign for the movie in France where they were just, you know, it was kind of like, um, it's kind of like the swimmer. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, I thought of the swimmer too. (laughs) (laughs) When you like, are you thinking of yourself or what's the title? Yeah. Yeah, right, when like, you, what is it? You, no, I can't remember. It's something like well, when, when you, you think talk of the swimmer, the swimmer, when you talk you about talk the swimmer, about you're talking about yourself. But I have to say, yeah. I was also reminded of Smithereens because uh, the ad campaign that they showed in the documentary, the Would You Give This Girl a Lift, and it was kind of like a sort of Xerox punk vibe mm-hmm. <laughs> style, um, reminded yeah. me a lot of what Ren does in Smithereens where she photo- she photocopies her photo and posts uh, images all right. around the city that says, who is this? It was very similar. Um, so I was just kind of like, I think it was just because also it's on my mind, but I was like, whoa, there's so many connections. I wonder if Susan Seidelman and Anya Varda yeah. ever met. <laughs> I don't know if they knew about the they films or like, <laughs> yeah. I know. Because, well, I mean, Smithereens was, it played at a con. Like Smithereens was a, was a thing in the art house world. Yeah, it wouldn't right. surprise oh, yeah. me. Varda <laughs> stayed plugged into the, to the kind of scene. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was part of the counterculture for a little bit in LA and she kind of did some of that. It wouldn't surprise me if she had kind of been seeing kind of what's going on with American film. Cause I remember she, she talked, she, she talked poorly about her time there uh, sometimes of, of her dealings <laughs> with American films, but she always talked kindly about like what was going on in New York and some of the independent stuff happening yeah. there. Cause yeah, exactly. Cause she was in LA and she didn't like LA, but I feel like the New York scene, cause I think Smithereens, cause I would, another thing that I, another character I thought of when watching this was in, um, was Nikki played by Robin Johnson in Times Square, which I believe was seventy nine. Mm. Yeah. Um, so again, if it, but her character very similar. You know, she um, kind of she does her own thing. She's really abrasive. She uh, is not very warm towards anyone. <laughs> and similarly, and she's kind of. I mean, I know they kind of find a place to live, but she's sort of like the implications that she's been living on the streets, living on her own for a long time. She might be about the same age as Mona. Um, and she kind of doesn't know how to ask for help. And I, I, I could see a lot of comparisons between that character and then the, the sort of like punk ethos of that movie. You can kind of see undercurrent, yeah. I think, in Vagabond. So like I don't as- assume that Varda saw these movies, but it definitely seems like there, there was kind of something in the air for a certain type of young woman character that was starting to be written um, yeah. like around this time period that I think she's kind of like relates to Varda's interests. Yeah, I mean, I guess the more together version of this would be Girlfriends, where she's kind of a mess, but she like you know, <laughs> has an has an apartment. Yeah, <laughs> she has and a job. She's also not she's not unlikable. I mean, she definitely does yeah. unlikable things, but she's not not yeah. in any in any way in the same category. I mean, I think the biggest difference between Ren and Mona is that like Ren, you could see there being like. 10,000 wrens in New York City. You know, like, there, <laughs> well, I also think there's Ren nothing necessarily, ambition. like... And I think that, like, yes, Ren yeah, wants... Totally. She, she wants something. She yes, doesn't know exactly totally. what she wants, <laughs> but she really, right. she wants to, to be something. Whereas I think Mona kind of wants to be anonymous. Like, totally. she doesn't... Yeah. She It's not that she wants to be invisible, necessarily, or that she doesn't want people to see her, but I think that she is so fully... Um, she's just, like, genuinely okay being by herself at all like without any thought of other people that it doesn't occur to her you know the way that other people see her or if they do at all 
Yeah, but that and I think that fits with their the biggest difference of just like the setting of you know, in New York, everybody comes to New York City to be somebody, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, and whereas like you don't go to the Languedoc to be somebody unless you're a winemaker. <laughs> <laughs> like you're not, you, you know. I think like there's there is a sense that she's kind of in the middle of nowhere at this point, um, and she's happy about that that's where she wants to be and, um, and right this, this area and for a drifter she doesn't drift too far she kind of just keeps on i know in that area yeah i think it's she, funny and, that she like circles back same social circle yeah she's like yeah <laughs> yeah she, you know and you have a bit of that kind of almost uh uh Kieslowski, uh you know everyone coming back together and how all the lives are interconnected and intertwined at that moment at the train yeah. station but mm. it's uh you know and and you can see you know it, it's that going back to that idea of challenging the audience you see like all these opportunities for you know her to have someone to reach out and give her that hand help her out of that situation where that you know pimp guys basically keeping her drunk all the time to kind of you know and then promising her the uh the thrilling life of posing um you know also porn but posing Posing. (laughs) which is you know is you know that predatory thing that you know happens to uh many people that are you know down on their uh you know down in that situation i like to i mean one of the things that i also enjoyed when we talked about the structure and laying it over a documentary uh feel um, the other thing that kind of um, structurally is going on is um, we're, we're experiencing Mona's journey and there's this constant, uh, you know, almost kind of like a, um, you know, this idea of uh, sh- she keeps on running into these situations and being tested and then picking the way that is uh, shunning society, you know, you know, she's not becoming a hermit because she isn't completely just going off nowhere and just kind of like finding a home for herself and staying there. She's always moving, but it's almost like she's always moving because the situation dictates it. It's not like, I think David, the, the, the guy with the chain collar says she felt like she was going to, she felt like she was going to be like a homebody. because when she does get kind of put into a situation where she's comfortable, she stays there. Until yeah. it's not yeah, she plants. anymore, then she leaves. Yeah, yeah, she plants. Like I like so, seeing her you know, in the but, in the um the little like hut, not hut, sorry, like the trailer that the uh, goat yeah. herder puts her in. Yeah, like she, you could see she like sort of accumulated stuff. Like she made a mess. She was reading books. She yeah. like she kind of just Nests. settled in. She sort of nested <laughs> yeah. a little bit. Yeah. And it's the goat herder who basically says, listen, you got to do something. You can't do nothing. I know. And she's like, well, fuck you. I'm doing whatever I want to do. And she just leaves. And it's kind of like. I know. She's like, the entire point is that. (laughs) Well, she's she said to I mean, she's right. Right. Like she says to him, like, you're as gross as I am. But uh, but you have to work all day. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. She's like, you're you're not selling this to me, bro. And and he makes some comment about how like, oh, she's. The fact that she shows that um, she's a burden on society, like she, or she's not contributing to society, means that she's hurting 
the cause that she's I, I'm trying to remember how he phrased it he basically it was very bullshitty and I was like oh fucking philosophers when he said it but he was basically <laughs> yes, like totally. mad he was mad at her for not contributing to society and thinks that it was hypocritical of her to like not want to make a you know work for herself yeah. I guess yeah I think he says uh, like by because by, she becomes by reliant on other having people. a purpose she proves that she's a waste just like society right. says that she is yeah yeah yeah. And it's just like I had to roll my eyes so hard at that one. Like it was such a, <laughs> oh, it was yeah. such a well, grind the, culture thing to say. <laughs> it's like bro, well, and you, it's so you're so like locked into the ideology that you're claiming to reject that you have to evaluate yourself and your own worth by their st- structure. Like Mona just right. doesn't give a shit. Yeah. That's the difference. Exactly. As soon as she and sees he was so judgy about she... it, and it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, she kicks it. She likes yep. kicking things. <laughs> yep. As soon as she sees any sort of structure or any sort of like a, a societal trap, she just automatically just like knocks it down and walks away from it. And I mean, that takes a huge, like Matt, you were saying earlier with, you know, the, just the societal norms of uh, politeness. And it takes a huge amount of, uh, you know, guts to be able to just constantly push that stuff away. Um, yeah. I was saying. And her, you have to wonder yeah. everything she's unlearned. Like, knowing that she, you know, mm. obviously had whatever life she had before involved working as a secretary. So you kind of imagine her. And I think I, you get the sense she came from maybe a city um, or, you know, right. someplace more populated, right? Um, so just I imagine that she wasn't always, you know, her personality has probably totally changed and that she's had to unlearn so much of that social conditioning, um, which takes a lot of work, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that in itself is impressive. Like, even if the resultant person is someone that maybe you wouldn't get along with. Just the fact that she was able to presumably undo a lot of that, that conditioning. Um, right. Is, is and it's also, it's not like she's 24 or something and has yeah. been on the road for five years. Like she must have, I mean, she, I, she's 17 when she made the movie, but I think her character is supposed to be 18. So ostensibly like she just left this job that she got right out of school. Right. And, and is, you know, has has only been doing this for you know maybe a year at most well i mean i don't even know if it's yeah. a full year i mean i think the yeah. maybe maybe the time of the movie's a year but i mean when she starts that's a brand new le- that's a that's a very new leather jacket those boots mm. are not worn in and you know she's emerging fresh and clean from the ocean right and then you know moves into basically being as filthy as humanly possible when she gets completely just dis- you know painted by the wine dregs which uh you know oh God. filthy her beyond recognition almost so I, that I think... scene is genuinely very scary oh it <laughs> is it's really scary that's um, a real thing too that they do it yeah because it was it, yeah, the that. actor was in a real uh what's the word she was like in the middle of a real like yeah yeah right they know yeah. they like did they just they just let them do it like they were just like well we're you can film us but we're gonna we're doing we're gonna just like normally fuck do. with yeah. your actor and they i have to, to say they, i did they had to stop and they had to stop it because it was crazy they were destroying the cameras they were destroying everything right right yeah. and then they hired and then they them to come like back and get some more shots because there was like at a separate time because you're like you guys are too crazy that whole thing is terrifying it's like it's like yes. fucking wicker man gone crazy it's like like what well, that, these... and that's what i love about <laughs> yeah. it like she kind of films it like a horror movie you have absolutely yeah. no fucking context oh no you just see everybody shutting oh, their yeah. windows and running away and right. her point of view and it's done so well and it kind of made me be like damn I'd ever make a horror oh, movie. Right? Oh, right. Oh, yeah. Especially because I was, of course, reminded of a little bit of um, 
the Grapes of Death. Um, have you guys seen that one? No, no. The Grapes of Death. Oh my God! I yeah, it's a, I watched it for the first time last year. Okay, don't let the goofy title um, fool you. <laughs> it's fucking harrowing. It's a Jean oh, wow. R- Roland Roland. Yeah. Um, zombie. It's like a zombie movie, but it's basically set in like vineyard and like wine country in oh, France, cool. and it's from okay. it's from the seventies, late seventies. And uh, there's some sort of toxic thing in the grapes, and it's like turning people into zombies. And like this one woman just like comes to this town that has been completely um, upended Ooh. by this like zombie wine disease, and. It's, I don't know, like, it's really, really good. It's really well done. And it's just kind of her being trapped in this terrifying wine town <laughs> where everyone is, like, losing their shit. Um, so I, I have to admit, I was reminded of that. Uh, and I think it would be an interesting double feature. <laughs> just two women having a bad time in wine country. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, but the the way that that scene it's I. It's the only time in my memory I can think of seeing something in in any Varda film that truly felt like a horror movie, and I think that's cool that she kind of went there. Yeah, I feel like the closest she's gotten is, is less creatures. No. Um, oh, which I haven't seen. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was her sci-fi movie. It's not horror. I highly there's, recommend there's, watching it. I. It's my but there's, least favorite. There's some aspects of it that are are you know trending in that direction. I feel like. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, no, uh, Grapes of Death is on Canopy. Yeah, super recommended. So, yeah. Legit. I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. Good. Let me know what you think. <laughs> <laughs> I was, because it's one of those, I was like so surprised by how much I got into it and by how like truly harrowing it was. And then I wanted to talk to everyone about it, but no one I knew had seen it. <laughs> I was like, God damn it, you guys. It's also got some killer poster artwork. I recommend Googling. Oh, I can see. Uh, yeah. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And really it's the cool. French title is like Les Raisons du Mort or something. Yeah. Um, I want to get I want to get real uh, film student for a second and Uh talk about this movie from the perspective of like not necessarily like a Christ arc but I do feel like there's a religious reading if we're going to get into religion you need to pause for a second (laughs) so I can go to the bathroom (laughs) I'll be right back wow harsh So, Mona is Christ. Mona and Christ. The passion. (laughs) So, I don't know. Like, I'm not going to go so far as to to say Christ, but... but, but, Christ-like, excuse me. So, so first of all, she sort of, like, emerges from the water. Like, you can read that as a baptism Mm -hmm. or as, like, a Moses story, whatever you want. Um, Have you ever heard of Venus? She was around before Jesus. Yeah, there you go. Venus, (laughs) yeah. Thank you. Thank you for helping me out here. I'm glad you're on board. Um, and then, well, if we're going to talk about you know, gods, we're going to talk about all of them. Certainly, That's like wandering saying. the countryside, bringing bringing uh, self realization to to all the people that she visits. Yeah. Um, and then, and then, you know, I mean, I think first of all, like the I know the trees Varda just those two trees Varda just picked yeah. because they were very striking. But there is something very like. Um, you know, almost like a crucifixion up on the hill about those trees. And then she comes and she's bathed in wine, you know, and just... And that is her uh, last essentially, Yeah, I mean, essentially just like crucified by these by these people. Well, yeah. Um, and, you know, has and has completely shed all of her worldly possessions throughout the course of the movie um, until she's, you know, sort of uh, sacrificed 
uh, to absolve our uh, all of uh, all of us view you know sinful viewers of our societal needs and uh, and moral structure. So that's my um, that's yeah. my religious reading of this so film. Didn't wouldn't have thought of it on my own. I don't think, but as I think that that act, and I don't think it was intentional, but I do think no. that there are definitely like relevant parallels. And mm. I mean, I think a lot of that reading also just will connect to, you know, so much of like Christ's teachings were about like poverty. And right. I feel like a lot of this movie, it's, it's about poverty, but it's also about um, those with uh, money's response to poverty and th- those with, you know, resources of any kind and their response to poverty. Um, which I think is a lot of like that sort of interaction um, informs a lot of like what Jesus's life basically, right? Yeah. <laughs> and of course him, you know, and of course living a, a transient lifestyle as well. Yeah. And the way a... that that's viewed and what that means, I think there's that parallel there too. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a Jobian passion play type of thing going on as uh, she just keeps on getting heaped upon troubles and seeing like whether she'll uh, you know continue forward with her ideals, what her goal is, which yeah. is to stay the course. Which you know that's always those trials and tribulations that are in a lot of Bible <laughs> stories and religious stories, right? Like, right. Well, we're gonna test you. Let's see. Let's see how strong you really are <laughs> in your convictions. And, you know, well, okay, yeah, you're going for it. And then, yeah, when, you know, she, I like what you're saying, Matt, where she keeps shedding her worldly, worldly possessions. But it's almost like she's not shedding them. They keep on being taken away from her. Yeah. You know, yeah, the fire it's, it's, that's not or, my choice. you know, the boots finally wearing to the point. Like, that just drove me crazy. Like, can you imagine just wet? gross boots dragging through everything uh, horrible floppy, and like on floppy. your feet I know. Yeah. No, and Varda knew that you would feel yep. that way because she fucking mm-hmm. like zooms in oh. and lingers on them and I'm like <laughs> yeah. oh, why are you doing this to me <laughs> lingering on the boots uh, showing yeah. the, z- the jacket not being able to zip up fully anymore on a cold day right. and you're just like oh come on you're killing me please there's something so something visceral warm. And you watch her give the scarf away, and you're oh. just like, no. Oh, yes, yeah. when she it's throws it away, you're like, Girl. don't do that. <laughs> you're going to oh, die. I we know. know this. You need that. Exactly. I know. It's like, I want to go back in time and help you. I but, mean, which is the point, like you said obviously. at yeah. the beginning of this, like the, there is this hope through the whole thing that like what you see at the beginning is not actually going to happen. But by the time she gets to the train station, it's just like, it, to me, like that's really where she becomes just so sad like it's yeah. just it they're just she's just a mess and she's hanging out with these horrible people who are also a mess and it, it i think part of it is that like through so much of the movie you know she's occasionally in interiors but she's always like moving through exteriors and there's something really cla- claustrophobic about that train station mm. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, I've been in that train station before, not that literal train station, oh. but like where there's like, you know, five crusty punks. No, the Harvard like, pit going to Har- yeah. Harvard Square. Right, going through right. The pit, you know? <laughs> before it was, uh, yeah, before it was corporatized. Yeah. Yep. yeah I mean, like that, I, I just feel like at that point was where I really started to like think about the Monas I've encountered in my life Mm. and like done, you know, barely paid any attention to, or just tried to keep moving quickly. Um, and Varda really like that, that scene goes on for a pretty long time and Varda really like 
languishes in that train station um you know and then obviously like the nephew comes in and makes his call but like there's just a real feeling of like she's reached the end of the line there yeah. I think that's also a scene where you really, at least for me, like I felt her age and was reminded mm. of, yeah. her, of her youth. Because, she, you know, for you, obviously, you know, she's young. You don't know her exact age, regardless of, you know, the actress's age. Um, like, I feel like she could have been in her early 20s. She could have been a teen. You know, it's not super relevant, really, for a lot of her interactions. Yeah. Whereas, and because she's so, um, for the most part, you know, she is, she, I know she asks for, she doesn't ask. I know that she gets help, (laughs) but she is largely self-sufficient. You know, she's kind of just doing her own thing. Um, but in that scene, you're like, oh, right. She's a teenager and teenagers make bad decisions and teenagers Mm -hmm. are emotional. And she's had this rejection, you know, from, and, and this loss of, of hope because she had wanted to work at the vineyard and she lost the friend she made there. And that was enough to send her spiraling because you're also at those like heightened, you know, your emotions are kind of heightened when you're a teen and the idea of hanging out with a bunch of like, yeah, like crust punk strangers and letting them get you drunk and like possibly turning to posing yeah who cares right. you know yeah. you don't really like the way that you make decisions is different when you're that age <laughs> well, yeah you feel you're and invincible I, like, you're invincible she's yeah. never had a and i wasn't really she's gonna end in that ditch right and i think that for a lot of the movie i wasn't really thinking that much about her age and the way it was like sort of affecting her decision making um just because a lot of her interactions you know people talk a lot about her lifestyle but her age didn't really come up in yeah. much uh, but that, but that scene was like it, like it just hammered in. Like this is an emotional, hormonal teenager who is going through it, and she is not going to be able to help herself because she's not capable of it. Because most, teen, you know, many teens, that's that's their mindset. Oh, that's they such, do not know any better. <laughs> that's such a good point. That, that that's something that kind of really didn't click with me until you just mentioned it. Like that, you do forget her age because she's so self sufficient in a way that is like ages above like what she really is and having her make those mistakes and falling into those traps like if you had this you know the simple support system that you would see in like any other movie where you have the the kid kind of falling down a bit then that friend shows up to pick them back up again or a parent and just not having any of those uh supports in line uh doesn't give you the opportunity to make that mistake and that's uh yeah that's that's brutal. That's a that's that's a really awesome observation. I did not really make that connection. That's great. I guess it's kind of also like that one time, like the first time she really loses control. Because even though she obviously like is sexually assaulted and there's lots of terrible things that happen to her along the way in this film, she's she's really like laser focused on what is her basic intention of just like having no, you know. Uh, obligations and moving through life on her own without you know needing to do anything and um being free basically doing you know getting help wherever she takes it and not worrying about where it comes from or or whether she needs to thank the person or not and that is like she she's kind of breaks down lets her guard down in that scene um, so I think that's part of it too. Like the, one of the yeah, like her her defenses so are gone. 
Yeah, like she yeah. seems grown up in the rest of the movie because she does seem like she's really focused on the task at hand. And in that scene, she, she it, it completely loses the script. Yeah, but you can see her, you can see like little pieces of that you know, the other Mona kind of, you know, I need a cup of coffee. What am I doing? I need to get up. Anyone want to move around? And like, you could see them just always constantly being like, no, come sit back down. Come no here, drink this. Don't think about that. And she, you know, she has those moments. And then the final kind of like the final straw when the house catches on fire, she doesn't go to seek those friends to kind of see what's up. She like jumps in a car and takes off. Like she, it's almost like she finally, but it was almost too late now she doesn't have any of her kind of stuff that would keep her alive a little bit longer and then you know it's kind of like that idea that you know uh, you know parents or adults will always tell you like you can't you know when you're making those poor decisions it's not those poor decisions that you're making it's the unexpected that happens is what causes death and accidents and horrible things to happen to you and that's basically exactly what happened. She gets to this low point and, you know, I bet if she got that, you know, she walked into that town and got that uh, bread from someone, maybe got another pack of smokes, found another blanket and went back into that radish shack. She might have made it. But then the unexpected happens and she's attacked by wine sodden tree men (laughs) which is like what that came out of left field (laughs) those people crazy then they're having that's what i'm going to tell my kids when they go exactly parties i'm going to say you never know when you're going to get attacked around any corner looking (laughs) you have no idea wine dregs are going to get you yeah (laughs) i do it is um realistic in that you know someone who's living that type of lifestyle whether it's by choice or not uh you are so often um you're kind of on a precipice right like Mm, you can maintain things and things are okay and you kind of you kind of have the you have what you need or you know how to get it but like one thing goes wrong and you can't get back out of it you know and and i feel like that even though it was a surprise thing to go wrong (laughs) like and kind of surreal you know, it's of course representative of a hundred other things that she might have experienced realistically and that would have sent her on a similar path just because they totally would have derailed her or taken away any ability to get herself out. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing that prevents us all from going on the road, right? Like it'd be, it'd be great. It's like Lost in America where it's like, you know, you, you sell your house, you get a big giant RV you can do whatever you want because you've got all this money to live off of while you, uh, you know, eat nice things and travel around the world. Um, but just but, around that corner, there's the Hills Have Eyes <laughs> RV park. And you, or you never know lose, when that's going to happen. Or your, or your wife would could lose $150,000 at a casino, whatever it is. Yeah. Like, cause, mm-hmm. you know, you never know, like, what, what's going to happen. And, and, and so if you, if you get rid of all of those safety nets that have been built up around you in society, like, you can fall at any time. And it doesn't take very much to have that happen. Um, you know, it's funny. So, I mean, I Sorry, think that's you a big s- part of it. You saying this just, it just struck me, actually, what... A contemporary parallel to this movie is is Nomadland. Oh, oh, oh yeah, I was actually going to bring up, bring up that. Oh okay, yeah, I, I had for some reason only just now. I hadn't, um, you know, I, I thought the movie was 
pretty good. I, I haven't rewatched it. It's not the kind of thing that I was super into, but but just the, the way because it also blends fiction and and mm-hmm. documentary. It does, um, and actually, I, that was one thing I wanted to ask you both about because I um, in Nomadland uh, certainly like Chloe Zhao got a lot of criticism in that film for mixing like Francis McDormand, like Oscar winning Francis McDormand movie star with (laughs) real people telling their real stories. Um, In, in this film, you know, she, she sort of base bases uh, the characters that the real people are playing on their real lives. So it's a little different, Um, but it's still, you know, I mean, Sandrine Bonaire, is a movie star. She had already been in films uh, at this point. Like she's playing a role next to these people who are really living this life. I mean, it's not quite the same because a lot of the people are not drifters specifically who she meets along the way. Um, But I did, I was curious to get your thoughts on kind of like the, that ethical situation and then also just the the difference between this and Nomadland in general which I think there there are some some clear parallels obviously but 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 obviously some some notable differences too yeah you know I always say there's a fine line between uh putting a spotlight on the problems of our society and buying their uh please help me signs and making art out of them mm-hmm. you know no, they, I think it's it's very, it's not easy, but it's just it's, uh, something becoming exploitative. Any kind of art that is made for public consumption that is addressing, so I mean, so many different types of issues, but here specifically, you know, homelessness, uh, poverty, etc. Um, there's, you know, I was thinking about it when they showed in the documentary, you know, Varda showed photos of them at... Um, where were they? Was it Con- no? They were at Venice, I think. Right? Mm-hmm. Was the where they won awards yeah. and showing them all like dressed up, you know, and, and not that they. Sh- I'm not judging. Not that they shouldn't have been, obviously, um, but that you know she had just been talking so much about all the real people in the movie and the real issues that she was addressing and the real stories that she was pulling from in order to make the film. Because of course, for her, is that she wants to you know, kind of get the word out there. She talked about how, like, homelessness wasn't really being addressed in, like, um, you know, in political conversations. I guess it was, you know, even in, like, activist circles, it was kind of less of an issue at that time, at least in France. Um, And so she, you know, and knowing Varda and knowing who she was as a filmmaker and as a person, I trust her. And I'm like, I know that she's not, she's not in it Mm -hmm. (laughs) she certainly was not in it to make money she wasn't in it to be glamorous you know she was really in it to to share people's stories um and to show to show the world to the world kind of you know to like introduce the people she's meeting and their stories to an audience um but there is a disconnect there when when like then she's taking this film and it's going it's winning awards and you know a bunch of rich fucking people are (laughs) are giving it you know a standing ovations and everything but and that what does that do did those people then turn around and advocate for you know whatever it might be like building more shelters for working on welfare programs for working on job programs or you know whatever it is that might be actually 
affecting change. Like, yeah, I'm well, gonna it's assume like that. all the Madame Landiers <laughs> who like go go show up yeah. to the screening and then you know go back mm-hmm. to their soaking tub and have rich conversations about exactly how wonderful and the they movie feel good was. about themselves yeah. because they watched a social issues movie. Yeah. yeah. As, right. you know, and they gave it an award. It's like, look at us. Let's pat ourselves on the back because we well, awarded yeah, that, the movie that was about, you know, that that, that, that wasn't a, a standard. Yeah, drama. that's that's <laughs> a, that's as far as the, that's as far as usually it goes. Look, look how good we did. Mm-hmm. We gave the award about we gave the movie about homelessness uh, exposure. We did we did our jobs. Let's all go home. Mission accomplished. Um, right, which is what ha- <laughs> exactly. also what happened with Nomadland, by the way. Totally. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. Winning best picture and. Uh, so that everybody can um, buy it, buy the Blu-ray on Amazon, and uh, talk about how wonderful it is when it arrives in the mail. But I do think there is a difference there because the conversation was different because of being able to discuss these issues in a public forum online, and being able to be much more aware of them in today's society, just with the way information is shared, um, as opposed to in 1985, where I think a movie about someone like Mona was genuinely like, like that was a new concept to a lot of people or that, that was a, that was a human being they hadn't really considered before. Mm -hmm. And so humanizing her and seeing her story probably did actually do something, at least for some people. And I think that's what Varda was trying to do, right? Where she was trying to be like, let's take this person who is not given attention, who is not like publicly addressed or whose story isn't normally told. And let's like, show her to the world that way people understand that like she exists and all of her and people who have this lifestyle exist and that they're struggling yeah i mean i think the the other side of it is that like and i by the way i i really liked nomadland a lot i thought it was a really wonderful um movie but i i do feel like nomadland is very much about the character that Frances McDormand is playing and the type of people who are in those situations. Whereas, you know, as we've discussed, Vagabond really does make you kind of think about yourself and your own situation and what you would be doing in that situation. And it's a lot more, I think, confrontational and challenging in that way and forces the viewer to kind of ask questions. And I don't know that there's... I think that there's broader questions being implied by Nomadland. Like, I think Nomadland is largely about, like, the American dream uh, or westward expansion, so to speak. Um, But that's, like, a much kind of more mushy uh, concept that doesn't... You don't... You can bring whatever you want to that, necessarily, and not in a way that I think is is guided with as sure of a hand as Varda is using here to kind of point you towards... Um, the naughty subjects that she wants you to to engage with um, when it comes yeah, to Nomad Land definitely seems it it does the documentary and fiction blending uh, obviously as we know but it's definitely more um, you know it's a little more Hollywood feeling right it's a little bit yeah, more yeah. more conventional maybe is the word that I mean like in both in its message as well as in its approach and like I mean this is not at all a, a judgment of it. I, I thought I liked the film as well. And I think um, Chloe Zhao is like a really interesting filmmaker. But I think, yeah, like you can't get away from the sort of Hollywoodness of it, especially with having big actors in it 
Like this one kind of helped. Because I, I think Sanjeev Bonaire, she had done films, but I don't think like people in the movie didn't know. I don't think they knew who she was, right? Yeah, she wasn't prob- like a household Probably name, not. Right? It was yeah, easier she, for well, her, her big blend. Yeah, her big film before this was Anosa Moore's, uh, the Maurice Pilat movie, um, which honestly, like, she you spends, know, we were talking a little yeah. bit about how uh, desexualized she is in this film. She's very sexualized in that movie to a very uncomfortable mm. degree. Oh, right. When she was like um, 16, sexual she was awakening 15 type of movie. At the yeah, time. She was, yeah. Oh almost, she was, yeah, she's like naked the whole entire movie. So Yeah, it's oh a very, very uncomfortable movie that um, I would assume Criterion would not be interested in releasing, re-releasing on Blu-ray. Oh, no, no. <laughs> it sounds, but, but, I um, can't lie, that sounds kind of French to me. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, oh, it's French. big time French. French. Teen sexuality. Big time French. Oh boy. Um, but it's very like it kind of reminds me of like blue is the warmest color in a lot of ways. <laughs> like speaking of French movies that that sexualize women, uh, to, young women to an uncomfortable degree. Um, but I, I mean, I think you know she was well regarded because of that performance, but uh, she wasn't like a movie star by any stretch yeah. um, i just mean it so Frances mcdormand is existing in a different plane right in terms oh, of yeah, when completely. these movies are being yes. made what what is the environment of dropping this actress into <laughs> um yeah. that's that's all i meant as as a i think it's hard to get away from from that with nomadland compared to something like vagabond which feels it's so it's just so gritty you know <laughs> yeah or the rider yeah. which was was her previous yes. film yeah. that i really like the rider like based on a real life story but um, yeah, but had entirely people from that world um, performing in the film, right? Yeah, in in, in the Eternals, she also got real gods to uh, come to <laughs> Earth and hang out. Um, you know, I think one of the you know we we're talking about all the parallels to other movies in terms of characters and in terms of female performances and stuff. And one of the movies that always kept on popping over my head, which is always a story is, uh, you know, it follows kind of the same trajectory, but handled in a much more male gaze way would be like Into the Wild, which, you know, it's... Or why, do you mean Wild, the no, the Reese Witherspoon? No, Into the Wild, which is that one with uh, directed by Sean Penn, the guy who oh, goes oh, yeah, and yeah, gets yeah, off yeah. the grid and okay. just goes and lives until he dies yeah. by himself somewhere. Um, you know, and I... It's I a, that's the Emile Hirsch one? Yeah, the Emil Hirsch. Am I thinking yeah. something else? Yeah, yeah. A no. movie involving both Sean Penn and Emil Hirsch. I did not watch. I'll be oh, honest. Oh, it, it was <laughs> too, you know, too many reasons not to watch it. it. <laughs> where, where this movie? But I remember doesn't, it coming out. Doesn't preach. Where this movie doesn't uh, make yeah. the big statements. Where this movie, do, you know, occasionally, you know, we have the, you know, even when the goat herder is kind of making that grand judgment on about Mona, which unfortunately parts of it come completely true she falls into that drug and wine and drinking and then ends up dying but even those like they don't feel like they're these grand statements where like into the wild is just basically large grand statement conversations about you know uh, freedom and spirit and nature and you're just kind of like and isn't it like two and a half hours (laughs) so long oh my god really so long (laughs) And it's like the Titanic. Yeah, that just it's sounds the kind of self-indulgent. You know the guy dies. <laughs> you know the guy dies at the beginning as well. But is exposed as, as opposed to kind of like dreading that and like you know seeing how he gets there. You're like, of, let's get to the point, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When is this ending? <laughs> Come on. Um, can we can we talk about Grizzly wow. Man too? Do we want? 
<laughs> How come she didn't get eaten by a bear? What happened there? I'm not sure. Do bear don't like wine. Um, th- somebody ju- just died uh, really tragically, like a woman and her son and her sister in Colorado. They like went to live off the grid in, in the woods and basically like died of malnutrition and, and cold. So, I mean, this is the sort of situation that happens on a regular basis um uh and you know is still obviously i mean homelessness is a extremely serious issue across the country uh right now um but it's hard with with somebody with with characters like mona like she's not homeless because she can't get a house like it's not because there's a housing you know affordability in housing mm-hmm. issue or um you know there's she doesn't have a steady job that she's able to to hold down like she just doesn't want she doesn't want to do any of those well, things she, she says that line to uh, the lady that owned the car she says that line like i lie about these things all the time too like you know whatever stories yeah. that she's saying so it could very well be that she does come from a middle class family and she does have parents and she has all that like support system. Yeah. And hence why she never leaves that area. That's the area they're never going to come to because it's a depressed farming community. So maybe they'll never see her there. And that's just, you know, so I'm going to kind of go live this uh, rejected life that I don't want to, you know, I don't want to. She's like living Lloyd Dobler's speech from Say Anything. You know, this, I don't want to produce or ingest any processed <laughs> or processed things, you know. And so she has that, like, credo and she's out in the world. And, you know, it, it's that unfortunate part where, it, you know, unfortunately for her, it went too far and something happened that was uh, uncontrollable. And, you know, I would also, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know a lot about France in terms of its uh, weather systems, but does it get that cold that you freeze to death at night? Like, I, I that was all. I mean, there that, was snow. It was snow, but it was only snow for a little bit. <laughs> I so, I mean, I've already said Maine that one of the reasons she chose <laughs> she chose that area because it. Because, like it was a place that got really cold okay at night, like that area of, of france like i i don't know a ton about like normandy no not french environment either it's, but it's, the, it's yeah it's the languedoc it's basically like the southern like coast of country, france right? in, yeah, yeah it's in between provence and like the um the mountains the, okay. is it the pyrenees down there so hot in the so, summer so maybe cold being in the by winter. the mountains yeah yeah it's i mean i and and she originally got this idea because a a male drifter died of um of being like of of cold Mm -hmm. and i think it was in this area that she was that she filmed in so it does happen travis i know i know yeah geez i'm not not trying to shit on it my dad died of cold (laughs) in the south of france okay you have no idea do you think she's like faking it do you think it was a con no yeah if we travis is like i was in paris in the spring and it was glorious it was beautiful there i don't know (laughs) what she's complaining about uh no pepper on every table if we go with matt's theory she's going to come back to life in three days anyway so it'll be all good oh my god (laughs) or as a zombie if it's great to death there you go 
I mean, Lots I think of options. I think that's one of the things uh, we kind of didn't we haven't touched upon too much is this uh, Varda's uh, the way that she goes about filmmaking, where she finds a space and then kind of builds stories around that space. And she picked, you know, an absolutely like stunningly tragic landscape for this movie. Just yeah. all those stunted trees, uh, the 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 grape. Uh, the grapevine trees that have been uh, pruned all the way down to little yeah. black stumps that just kind of like uh you know jut out angrily in the uh in the in the landscape is uh it's pretty uh pretty fascinating and like the the level of poverty and decay in a lot of the uh the surroundings the houses uh you know even the rich people's houses that they kind of never visit anymore they're just kind of crumbling and falling apart it's a uh, absolutely beautiful uh, backdrop to kind of help really tell the story a lot yeah, it kind of made me think a little bit of uh you, you'll get to it later but i was thinking of like gleaners and i and some of the landscapes yes in that movie totally. and some of the places you see visits so I, I know that's not for this podcast but i was like oh i could see you see her um you know the appeal of it kind of to even just in a visual sense well, and, and the lifestyle stuff too, as well. Yeah, really, that philosophy. Isn't this I movie mean, sure. exactly? Isn't this movie the impetus for kind of following that? Didn't she meet people? Like oh, I don't that think I knew that. This? I, oh, it's it possible. Makes sense. I, I, I might have read a that. I might have read that in one of her interviews in the Varda Speaks interview book. Hmm. Yeah, I wasn't sure just because there's what there's like fifteen-ish years between the hmm. films, so I wasn't sure how much of a connection there was. But I definitely it felt. I felt connections when watching it, but I, yeah, it would make sense for sure. Yeah. Um, to your point, Travis, I mean, I, it, I sometimes forget, um, just how like visually impressive Varda's films are if I haven't watched them in a while, because I'm left with such like a strong emotional response to them. Um, like on a humanist, from a humanist perspective and an intellectual perspective, um, with the exception of something like Le Bonheur, which is just like very in your face in terms of how sort of, you know, color and stylistic it is. Um, but this this is very much a photographer's film. Um, the compositions are really striking. And, um, you know, she's she's constantly finding the most interesting place to put the camera yeah. in every space that she's in. Yeah. I mean, she she approached all films right as a photographer. So yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. But she didn't always get a lot. Of, not all of her films really make that obvious. Um, but this has, I think, because this film has a little bit of a broader scope compared to some of her other movies, that she's able to kind of show that off a little bit more, which is kind of exciting. Yeah, and I love that. I love that she, you know, throughout her whole career, it's like she builds from the place out to the story and then back into itself right. again which is such a fascinating way to work and it's almost a it's a it's a form of it's a form of filmmaking that just doesn't exist anymore you know everyone like bends 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 right. the world to their vision as opposed to finding you know <laughs> yeah they all need to storyboard yeah. like coen brothers to yeah. death <laughs> or, or even like, oh, this place doesn't exist. We're going to build this place out in right. the field somewhere or like move that right. tree. You know, these producers, I, you know, I've, I've been in I've been in a, a situation where we have done something that just defies God's will. 
and and the producers are like, this is so fucking Hollywood while smoking their cigar. And you're like, oh, I feel so gross working in this industry. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's that, you know, and like I always think of I always think of that. Uh, I think it was uh, Ron or Kajimushu, or, you know, one of the uh, Kurosawa movie where there's a famous story of him just sitting on the beach for like six days waiting for the perfect waves. And like no one makes <laughs> movies like that anymore. No one like goes out and find. I think, what is it? Tarzan Sings the Fall. I think that was oh, the yeah. last one where he's like just going and finding these unique places and filming there. And I, I, I just know. love that idea. The movie is so breathtaking. Yeah. Oh. And especially knowing that so yeah. much of it is real. But yeah. I think that's also speaks to like Varda. Um, I mean, obviously coming to film as a photographer, but also as someone who didn't really have formal training as a filmmaker. So she, from the very beginning, right, she yeah. was always viewing things first as a photographer because she didn't like go to film school. Um, but it's also so much that her, I think that like the sort of core thing about her is that her interest is always in the people and the places where she is. Like she just has this genuine interest in other people, um, and in their stories and in, you know, just hearing their voices and seeing their lives and their, their worlds. So she wouldn't really want to, I mean, she... She like has she plays with the places that she is and she'll kind of have fun with them, but she doesn't want to change them or she doesn't want to make them something different because she's inter- interested in them for what they are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's I, I love that. I love that. Uh, I love that aspect about her filmmaking is that. Well, and that's what makes remembrances and all of her these other films where she returns to the places where she filmed these these movies so compelling because those places are still there. And you get to see them wear with age, and you get to see the people change over time, um, and you can see her enthusiasm about it mm. too. Um, is there uh, anything else on on Vagabond that we want to cover? I feel like we covered most of the stuff. I did want to say that I really appreciated that um, she worked in like an environmentalist angle, like all the stuff about the plane trees, which is mm. something that yeah. she herself was like, this is a problem and I want people to know about it. So she kind of just shoehorned it in, not even shoehorned, but she put it into the film in a way that wasn't, you know, crucial for the story, but was really interesting. And I really liked that segment and it was real. Um, yeah. Like, yeah, that tree was really getting cut down, right? Um, and I, I really actually like that. Like, I think it is cool when a filmmaker, whether it's like a sort of capital I issue type thing that they want to talk about, or just like a personal interest. Like, I feel like if I were a filmmaker, I would constantly be having characters like randomly have monologues about shit that I find interesting <laughs> totally, that I yeah. just want it's other people literary. to know about. You know, like yeah. it's like you're you're whatever, like you're writing a book about a guy and you make him a projectionist at a movie theater. You know what I mean? Like mm, it's can't relate, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, exactly. So I really and I and I also what because one one of the th- many things I love about Varda is the way that she so often puts herself into her films, and you know she often does it very literally, of course, in her documentaries. But I think this is a good example of you, you know you don't see her in the movie, you hear her voice once. Like I said, when I was watching, I kind of felt that she was the presence people were talking to, but that's not necessarily right. true. Um, but it's it's another way that she's putting herself into the movie um, in a subtle way because she's like, "This is something I think is important, and I'm interested in, and I'm gonna have I'm gonna have characters who talk about it and like you know explain it to the audience." And so I like that. 
that too. Just just feeling her presence in a different way. Yeah, and it's also part of her her visual idea. You know that the uh, that that uh, themes can emerge that uh that tie this uh, idea of these trees being blighted and rotted and changing the face of uh of the French countryside and, uh, you know, having this girl who's kind of, uh, you know, also being blighted and rotted from the outside in because she's, uh, refusing to change and kind of like, you know, no, you know, also needing help, but no one's really there to try to fix her. And, uh, it's this, it's the kind of a same, like nice, nice symbolism that, uh, people look at later in life and make those connections, whether she intended it or not, which is always nice. I think the other thing we didn't talk about is the use of popular music uh, throughout the film that she used. I mean, I think we watched uh, One Sings, The Other Doesn't, which was a bunch of music that she had written for her movie. But this one, I mean, they had lots of contemporary, uh, probably in France, songs that um, played diegetically throughout, which I thought was uh, was super fun. I think we were talking about that uh, off, off air before the uh, podcast started. Agree. I feel like I don't necessarily think strongly of like sort of contemporary music in her films. Like maybe it's just something I haven't really noticed before. I, I'm, I'm a very visual person, yeah. so sometimes music doesn't quite sit with me. But it was something I was thinking. I was like, oh look, I love this. Just kind of this like little montage with the doors. Yeah. Um, and and I was saying before, like I yeah, I, when I think it's when she's in the car and she yeah. has the radio on, and the Lerita Mitsuko song comes on, and I'm like, hell yeah, what a cool radio station. <laughs> Um, because that was a band that I only learned about recently, but clearly there they were in 1985 on French radio. So like, that was kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I guess she hasn't really done that before in, uh, in any of the other films that we've had like diegetic music of like people playing in the streets or the music she's made, but to uh, actually have, uh, and it, and it makes sense, you know, as the char- as her, as a character, uh, enjoying that music, being young, like we've talked about and wanting to listen to, uh, you know, the rock and roll, the rock and roll music that uh, is playing <laughs> in that uh, in that time, and I thought that was They're really fun. The to kind of yeah, the kids doing it for the kids. But yeah, no, I like <laughs> I, I like that. I liked hearing some of her her choices for that type of music because it made it uh it made it fun to think what she's uh listening to, what she was inspired to to uh to have these scenes. And it kind of grounds it in the time period too. Like I think the the generalness of the story probably could have been you know told at other times and there's not a whole bunch of like specific fashion or specific uh technology even really that made me think like oh yeah it's 1985 you know unlike many other 1985 movies you're like all right we get it it's 1985 (laughs) (laughs) um so i did think that kind of some of those musical moments i was like oh right it's the mid 80s yeah i mean there was no tears for fears in this movie which would have really placed it in the 80s but uh you know it's still uh... automatically taken (laughs) away a star just for that (laughs) <laughs> Yolande, Yolande's clothes were pretty 80s Yeah, yeah she, I think that she Because she was the one who I was like yeah. I love her Because fa- I love 80s fashion in general And when I watch an 80s movie That doesn't have like interesting fashion I'm like what, what are they doing Yeah the other <laughs> the 80s was character, character. Was, um, was the nephew Which was not the good side of 80s no. fashion Oh that's true he was like a shitty yuppie, yuppie. 80s yeah. Yuppie 80s 
Yeah. I love how much we all really hate the nephew. Oh. I feel like every, everyone's like, oh, the oh, yeah, nephew. The <laughs> like you he say, with such disdain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. <laughs> well, I mean, his his wife is no uh, is no uh, lovely person to look up to either, you know. Uh, yeah, they're both. Know. But he no. married her. They were. Yeah, they represent that middle class posh. So, like, together, of, uh, they're up bad. and coming. Yep. Yeah. Ugh. Sigh. Um, but speaking of the the nephew, um, his aunt is in the the short that uh, accompanies this film um, on the on the disc, the the vagabond disc, um, story of an old lady, which is only about two minutes long. Um, it's a a reel of film that Varda found sitting around uh, that had gotten mold on it, um, but she felt it was still worth. Um, Oh. tacking on to uh, the DVD of Vagabond. Um, and it's a real delight. I mean, it's just the complete pleasure. Yeah, listening to uh, listening to the lady talk and kind of like, I love that line of like, uh, am I going to have to be nude again? Yeah. I don't want to be. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. You're going to be a rich idea. And there's like, had, did, I don't know if you've seen, did you see that story of an old lady, uh, Alex? I saw that it was on the channel and I I did not. That's all right. Yeah, it's 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 like it's kind of like I a forgot. little. It's a little. No, it's all right. We I don't think we even had it listed. It's a it's a little like it's it's like a three minute thing. It's like behind the scenes of uh you know someone rolled on a her giving the lady direction and they're talking about the character. She's like scolding her and telling her to be more of a uh, matron and, you know, yell at the <laughs> housekeeper and the lady's having she's a hard time. laughing the whole time. <laughs> laughing the whole she's time about loving, it. She's like, it. oh, I've, I've always been a maid. I was never someone who's been in a position to tell a maid what to do. So I don't think I can do this. And she's like, no, you can't. You could can do it. And it was really cute. But it also was really weird because it was so moldy the film that it looked kind of like a was it bill morrison who did like uh yeah yeah oh, like, yeah decasia yeah, yeah and uh yeah so it had that feel and quality to it because it's like some of it's really getting bad and the sides are really fading and it, it looked really it was an interesting little piece yeah that is that even just for the film reason too i'd be interested yeah. i will check it out yeah for sure um, so Alex, what, what we do on this show is, uh, we rank the films that we've seen so far. It's a, uh, it's our silly project to have a little bit of fun reflecting on what we've watched to this point. Um, we're not going to make you do that, um, for those <laughs> films, but I was curious, um, where you'd kind of, uh, slot vagabond in relation to other varda films and and if you have a favorite varda film um you know what is it honestly it it, since i saw this years ago it it has been vagabond um i think that i would maybe i i did um just earlier this year i think it was watch for the first time um murmurs Mm. um which you've already covered i believe um yes which I think uh, as a, that sort of became, I, I couldn't say that it's my favorite. It might be tied <laughs> or like close second. Like that one definitely got up there. I think just also because of, um, I think just as an artist and as someone who loves uh, murals and public art and that time period of art and that it's such an important, uh, the fact that it captures all this work that is no longer 
there or has deteriorated or been covered or whatever you know it's documenting uh public art is really important and it often isn't done (laughs) so seeing her do it with such care and um and of course all the interviews and, and all the um sort of uh info about those communities um is crucial uh from an art history point of view so that i really got a lot out of that one too um but i but it's ever since i saw vagabond i was like this is the one <laughs> of course i love cleo from five to seven as well and that's the first one that i saw of hers so that holds a special place but um i think yeah it's it's probably gonna remain vagabond i think um there's still a lot of her movies that i haven't seen but hard to imagine it being knocked off that's awesome yeah i'm from la so uh, murmurs is oh like yeah big big movie for me that's that must be so cool to see all those uh locations and everything if you if you know oh them. it really is yeah yeah that's awesome time. um okay travis all right let me preface let me preface once again as always all these agnes varda movies are better than almost most movies so this ranking is super superficial <laughs> and totally personal and uh <laughs> you know anyone that is in a lower section of my rank does not mean that the movie has get no on with all right, all right fine. Here, we go. here we go enough stalling all right so still at my bottom is nausicaa her unfinished greek uh, un- not a real movie yeah exactly unfinished greek film there was efforts there but uh you know because it was so unpolished it was hard to watch um uh, then followed by la point court um you know her first entrance into the the world of film and uh there's still some really, really clunky stuff there but it's still absolutely beautiful and wonderful to watch uh then we go into the latest creatures her sci-fi film that i I'm going to watch again one day and probably really like it. But uh, when we watched it for this uh, for this podcast, I had, could not get into it. And then for the two uh, people who liked Murmurs so much, I have Murmurs um, right there. Um, uh, followed by uh, Lions Love and Lies. Uh, we go into Daguerreotypes. Um, Documentor, uh, the, uh, the spiritual cousin to Murmurs. Um, Cleo from 5 to 7. One sings, the other doesn't. Vagabond coming in at second, hot second, placing everything down a list. <laughs> but I'm still got Le Bonheur at the top of that list because, mm. man, that movie shook me and changed how I saw a lot of her films. And uh, it is something to behold. And uh, right now it's still raining at number one. I should sure revisit like... that one. That's one I didn't get as into when I watched it. Oh, but I, I think it, it. I think it was like the second one I watched, and I remember watching like on my laptop. And I think like my partner of the time might have been like playing video games, and I had my headphones on. But <laughs> I feel like I was not yeah. watching it. It was one of those movies that like. It was one of those movies that like we wa- I watched the first time, and I was kind of like really, and then I watched the second time. I was like oh. There's so much more in this. And then I watched it the third time. I was like, oh, my God. This is like, this is totally devious what she's doing here. <laughs> like, she has okay. so many layered okay. things going on here that is like, oh, she's tearing everyone apart right now. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like your right, partner playing video games during Le Bonheur is like very poetic. Yes. Like, it's like a beautiful. Oh, I didn't even mean that as like, I'm not, it's not a diss. I just mean, I, I, have, I feel like I was like 
there was like stuff going on I, and yeah i think i wasn't maybe no it's yeah but like, no that's just a perfect scene <laughs> yeah but no um, that's true but i should yeah I think well you'll have to you'll have to listen to our episode and see see if you yes uh, i agree do have to go it, back with and us. I'm, so I'm so that. travis i mean i think uh our general areas are similar but i feel like this is the most different we've been on any season in terms yeah. of, of ranking order um even though you know like you they're they're bunched up very closely, um, especially in the middle. Um, so I'm Nausicaa at the bottom, Cre- this creatures, daguerreotype, point court, then documentor, uh, lions love and lies, murmurs, one sings, the other doesn't, Cleo from five to seven, and then vagabond uh, at number two, right behind Le Bonheur. So we have the same uh, top two yeah anyway um vagabond to me i think that this is one of the best films of the 80s uh made by anybody i think this is a five-star masterpiece yada 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 all that stuff i think um this is definitely one of her best films and i think it's just a um profound work of art that i will return to regularly in my life and um be bummed out and again but also be challenged and uh invigorated and um hopefully i'll be able to have uh wonderful conversations about it after i'm done like this one um with you alex thank you so much for for, oh thank you for having me on the show now i'm hoping we get a theatrical screening of it sometime soon Uh, this would be lovely to see that would be amazing we did a the brattle did a big varda retrospective years ago yeah when i first started working there it must have been 2019 maybe um because i saw a few that i had like that's how i saw um 101 nights which at that point i think there wasn't like a way to watch it for me um and we must have shown vagabond but i don't think i Maybe I wasn't free. But yeah, it would be great to have this again, maybe as a different series, maybe a series, maybe a road movie series or something. Oh, um, that'd be good. I'll have to, I'll, I'll, I'll put in a good word for it with the programmer at the Brattle. Please we'll do. See. Please <laughs> do. We'll be there. Yes, we'll definitely be there. Yes. I was just thinking after, after making this list, um, I think Vagabond would be a good pair with One Sings, The Other Doesn't, because it's both movies about women striking out on their own and doing their own thing in their own way. Where one has a very tragic end, the other one has a very positive and happy ending. So, I think... uh, Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good point. I mean, Vagabond and Cleo are both about women wandering around uh, sort of aimlessly, I guess. Mm. But very different social strata, those two women yes and entirely yeah it's, it's hard to imagine them together yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, um, well i guess with that we're complete for another week 